right, good morning. Good morning. We gathered a few more together here today. Uh, we open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John chapter 15. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. John 15, 1 through 11. We really have, once again, just some amazing verses to dig our teeth into and to feast on today. Um, but before we read the text, uh, let me give you some of the context of uh, where we've been. Um, if you were with us last week, you'll recall it is um, still Thursday night of Passion Week. Um, we are now just hours away from the betrayal that will take place in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Lord's subsequent arrest and crucifixion. Chapters 13 and 14 take place in what is referred to as the upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. And as Jesus and his closest disciples, now the 11, are all huddled up for what will be the Last Supper, I'm sure all throughout Jerusalem at this time, you could hear the cries of some quarter million lambs, over 256,000 lambs, Josephus says, were being slaughtered at this time of season for the Passover celebration. This would happen the following day on Friday, the 14th day of Nisan. But here in the upper room, Jesus was preparing himself to be the final, perfect, spotless, ultimate sacrifice that would atone for the sins of his people. He has just instituted communion for the very first time. He has just finished washing his disciples' feet. Satan has literally entered into Judas, the betrayer, and Jesus says to him, what you do, do quickly. And at this very moment, Judas is now meeting with the religious leaders of Israel, plotting where it would be the best place to betray the Lord Jesus so not to do it in front of a mass of people. And Jesus, the Bible says, knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to return to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So as we begin the 15th chapter of John, though it is still late Thursday evening, our scene shifts. Chapter 14 closes with Jesus saying, rise, let us go from here. And so as they are leaving the upper room, Jesus and his disciples begin walking. But where are they walking to? Well, if you uh, flip over chapter 18 and verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Brook, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So in chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane would have been um, on the east side of the Temple Mount. It, it's right there at the base of the Mount of Olives. Um, and this is where Jesus will pray to the Father and, and ultimately in the garden where he'll be betrayed. So in chapter 14, they leave the upper room. In chapter 18, they enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. So chapter 15 takes place either at a location on the way to the garden maybe right there at the base of the Mount of Olives, or it could be simply happening as they are walking there. However, once again, let me remind you, this isn't a sermon for the masses to hear. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ under the cover of the darkness of sky. And here stands only Jesus and the eleven. The cross that Jesus will bear is now but hours away. And as Jesus and the eleven no doubt are walking quietly through the Kidron Valley, he has promises and truths that he must share with them in order to comfort them, in order to strengthen them, in order to build the disciples up. These are his final instructions before Jesus leaves and goes back to the Father. Last words are lasting words. This is not a time for small talk. These are words that under normal conditions you would only be able to hear behind closed doors and would be said to only someone who you deeply trusted and loved. The Apostle John called himself the disciple whom 
Jesus loved. And as the Holy Spirit has now brought these words all these years later to the forefront of his mind, he records them for us to read and to meditate on some 2,000 years later. So once again, we are blessed to peer behind the veil, if you will, and enter into the sacred ground, these final words of instruction that Jesus gives. And not only for these 11, but as Jesus will pray later in chapter 17, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. These promises are sealed in the Son to the Father, and they are for those who believe through the apostles' teaching, through the New Testament. So let's begin today by reading our text once through, and then um, after we can carefully consider each verse and what God has for his people today. So beginning in verse 1, these are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Wow. Um, even in these final hours, Jesus, the master teacher, continues to teach his own even as they're making this short excursion. And he continues to pour forth truth into their minds and into their hearts. And you may recall there were two major announcements that Jesus had made while they were in the upper room that really rocked the disciples to the core. First, Jesus had said to them in John 13, verse 21, Truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And at this point, the disciples still have no idea who it is. Is it me, Lord? Who is it? And you'll recall when Judas left, some of the disciples thought, well, since he had the money bag, Jesus was telling them to go buy what we need for the feast. Go buy some more food. And it says in chapter 13 that others thought what Jesus said when he said, what you do, do quickly, that he should go and give something, some money to the poor. So at this point, they still don't know that it was Judas. And so one of these things that Jesus addresses here is who is a true disciple and who is not? And then the other thing that has troubled their hearts is when Jesus said to him in John 13, verse 33, Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So he is leaving them. He is going back to the Father. And this has also hit them like a ton of bricks. Uh, they have left their wives. They have left their businesses. They have left their fishing nets behind. They have left their tax-collecting booth. They have left everything behind in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only life they have now is in following him. 
And Jesus now says, where I am going, you cannot come. So where does this leave them? How will the disciples be able to survive? Jesus has always supplied them with whatever they needed. And so both of these, I think, are looming heavy on the disciples' hearts. In our verses today, I believe Jesus addresses both of these two issues. He will say to them that after I leave you, I will continue to take care of you. And he paints a portrait of himself as the vine, and they are the branches. That even after my physical departure, I will remain connected to you spiritually moment by moment as you abide in me I will abide in you and I will supply you with everything that you need and then he'll also explain to them how you can know that you are truly one of his disciples we will see all of this today in these extraordinary verses that really couldn't be more practical for today and that we can apply to our own lives. Um, so my prayer is that these truths will only further strengthen your own faith and that you also will bear much fruit as you abide in Christ and he abides in you. So you'll see there on the back of your bulletin, I've divided these verses into four headings. And in verses one through three, Jesus described this continued relationship with his disciples with this analogy. And to me, it's almost like he is painting a picture for us, this portrait. And there's four parts to this illustration. And the first one that we see is the vine, the vine. Notice how verse one begins. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, vineyards were visible all throughout Judea during this time and, and even today. Um, but Josephus, the historian, tells us that one of the, the main doors to the temple was about 60 feet high. And it was decorated all along the door and all along the trimmings, these huge, giant, golden vines and clusters of golden grapes, all covered in gold. There were also copper plates picturing the fruit of the vine everywhere. It was stamped onto their coins. The vine was the preeminent symbol of Israel. And that was because the great vine was a symbol in the Old Testament which betrayed the nation of Israel as God's chosen vine or his vineyard. For example, in Psalm 80, verse 8 through 9, the psalmist wrote, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Or in Jeremiah chapter 2, God spoke through his prophet saying, I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. However, Israel proved to be fruitless, an unfruitful vine. And so God said, how then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? And in Isaiah chapter 5, God said, What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for you? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And so he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. And for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. The vine was the well-known symbol then of Israel. However, in scripture, the majority of these references refer to her deterioration rather than to her fruitfulness. And so here... Then in John 15, Jesus identifies himself, I am the true vine. It's a profound declaration. And if you're familiar with the gospel of John at all, 
um, you know that the backbone of his gospel are these seven I am statements in John. This is the seventh and final of the I am statements. Jesus has already said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. And every one of those declarations is a declaration of his deity and of his sufficiency. And when Jesus says, I am, he's saying, I am God and I am all that you need. He is saying, I am the source, the vine for all of your needs. Abide in me. And in contrast to Israel, whom God rescued out of bondage of Egypt, who cleared a land for her so her, her roots could, could grow, a God who cultivated the land, and so it could become fruitful to all of the nations. In contrast to that vine, Israel, who is not fruitful, Jesus says, I am the true. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus had come from a, a dry ground. The suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53 is, is filled with these foreshadows and, and a look of the Messiah, the suffering servant to come. And that Jesus was this coming from this dry ground, meaning that he was born in, in Bethlehem, this little dust bowl up there, out there in the sticks outside of Jerusalem. Isaiah also prophesies he had no form or majesty about him, meaning there was no physical or social standing that people should even look at him or, or be drawn to him. He had no extra beauty about him, meaning there was nothing special about Jesus' look. He looked like a regular Jew. And yet Isaiah sees Jesus growing up as this tender shoot. This tender shoot. He would be despised by men. And yet he was perfect and beloved by his father. So Jesus begins by saying, I am the true vine. And <clears throat> this <clears throat> true vine is the only vine by which the grace of God can come into your life. This vine is the only pipeline from heaven into your heart. It all comes through this one true vine. And to be disconnected from the vine is to be disconnected from God and to be disconnected from his grace. The word true here in the Greek means real, genuine, and authentic, which implies that there may be many other false and counterfeit vines and it is a reference to the apostate religious system that has now overtaken Israel and its self-righteous teachers there was no grace in Judaism there was no salvation being taught whatsoever in fact when Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 15 he said you hypocrites these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach doctrines of men. Leave them alone, Jesus said. They are blind guides. Let the blind lead the blind. Both will fall into the pit. Wow. And so here Jesus distinguishes himself as, I am the true vine. And to say that he is the vine is to indicate that there is life in him. It is to say that all life will come to us through this one true vine. And so by this imagery, Jesus represents himself to be the sole source and supply to every need that we will ever have. And we need to be reminded of this because we have a tendency to look to our right and to look to our left and to, to look at uh, what it is that we can do on our own for our needs to be met. 
And we need to be reminded that Jesus has an exclusive monopoly on everything that you need. So the, the second part of this painting is the vine dresser or the gardener. He says, 15 verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, of course, when Jesus is talking about my father, which he does throughout the Gospel of John, he is referring to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. And the fact that Jesus designates the Father here as the vine dresser while assigning himself to the role of the vine is in no way denial of his deity and full equality with the Father. I think we have you know, a tendency in our day here today to totally forget about the ministry of God the Father. Um, we talk lots about God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, I think, sometimes gets the short stick. And, and we need to be reminded that God the Father is overseeing everything in your life. And everything that you have has come ultimately from God the Father. For it was God the Father who sent the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last chapter we read, we read, it will be God the Father who will send another helper, the Holy Spirit. It is God the Father who is overseeing everything in your spiritual life. life. Don't lose sight of God the Father. Now this word translated vine dresser in the Greek, uh, yeah, another one I'm not going to try to pronounce, means a, a farmer, a, a worker of the soil, or a vine dresser. Um, it's the one who assumes full responsibility for the planting of the vine and for the care of its branches. And in reality, the father is not only the land worker, he is the land owner. He does it all. He tills the ground. He plants the vine. He prunes the branches. He stimulates the growth. He gathers the fruit. He calls the rain. He cuts off the dead branches and throws them into the fire. We see in this picture that everything is proceeding from God, the Father. He neither sleeps nor slumbers, the Bible says. He's at work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And is actively involved in every area of your spiritual growth. He is the architect and he is the author of everything that is good in your life. Now, apart from planting, fertilizing, watering the vineyard, the vine dresser had two primary responsibilities in caring for it. And this is going to bring us to number three, as God the Father removes non-abiding branches. He removes non-abiding branches. And we see this beginning in verse two as Jesus continues. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. Now, this part of verse 2 has long been troublesome for many Bible teachers. <laughs> and I think the key to understanding it is what he says here in verse 2 and what he says eventually in verse 6, as those, these two verses are inseparably bound together. And when we read uh, verse 6, it becomes very obvious to us that this branch that is at the beginning of verse 2, that does not bear fruit, was never truly a branch that ever abided in the true vine. Okay? This is a picture maybe of Judas the betrayer and, and those who are like him. Someone who appears for a time to be a true disciple, only later to, go, to discover that they were never truly connected to the true vine. Notice in verse 2 when Jesus says, every branch in me. This is not to be taken the same way as when the Apostle Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No. Here is to be understood as in close association to, in close proximity uh, with. In other words, someone who professes Christ, but they don't possess Christ. He's caught up in the activity of maybe attending church, uh, but he doesn't have the Lord inside of his own heart. We were just saying, all he ever wanted was my heart. 
And so he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. And the reason this branch does not bear fruit is because it's dead. It's dead. It's like this piece of uh, a dead wood just floating down the stream. A, a branch where there is no life in it is dead. It's cut off from the source. And so therefore there is no productivity that comes from it. There is no fruit whatsoever. And so Jesus says here that he, God the Father, takes it away. Now this verb takes away means literally to, to lift up. But the idea in this context is to lift up so it can be taken away. Picked up and taken away so it can be removed. And these non-fruit bearing branches will be gathered up. And in verse 6 they'll just be thrown into the fire. And so we need to understand that whenever God's people gather together, there are always the wheat and the tares. There are always those who know the Lord, and then there are those who simply know about the Lord. And in this case, this is one of those who is merely along for the ride without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not know him. They know about him, but they do not know them. And then number four, the fourth picture he paints is in stark contrast to the first branch. This one is a branch that abides, an abiding branch, one that is connected to the vine, one that is connected to the source. And he describes this in the middle of verse two as Jesus continues. He says, in every branch that does bear fruit, he what? Prunes that it may bear what? more fruit that's a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ you see we need to understand that every true believer bears fruit every true believer if there is no fruit then that is a branch that is disconnected from the true vine and notice every branch that does not bear fruit he God the Father or every branch that does bear fruit, he, God the Father, prunes it. He prunes it. Now, that's different from lifting up and carrying away. He actually prunes the branch. Now, why would God prune the branch? He tells us at the end of verse 2 that it may bear more fruit. Back when I was 15 years old, one of my very first jobs was working on Green Truck Farm. And... One of the jobs that Dave gave me to do was pruning the shoots off of thousands of tomato plants. And if you have ever had a garden before, you probably had to prune them. They're, sometimes they're referred to as suckers because they suck off of your plants and you break them at the, at the point where the stalk and the, and the branch comes, right in the middle there. And if you don't prune them, they will suck the energy from the stock, and ultimately, your fruit will become smaller. Pruning them not only makes the plant more manageable, so it doesn't have these excess shoots coming off everywhere, but the fruit that it produces is far better, and it produces even more of it. And so here we see God the Father, the, the master gardener who Jesus pictures as actively involved in our daily lives in really this kind of hands-on kind of a way, trimming and removing the things that is sucking our spiritual energy and hindering our spiritual growth. And how does he do this? Well, he certainly uses the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active. And what? Sharper than any two-edged sword. This is one of the tools he uses to prune us with. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and is the discerner of our thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Father uses the word to, to peel back, to peel away the 
old self in our lives so we can conform more and more into the image of his son. James chapter 1 verse 21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The implanted word. And, and this is why the word of God is so important. This is why we teach the word. This is why we declare the word and meditate on the word. Pray the word. He uses it to penetrate into our minds and to penetrate into our hearts as the word of God transforms us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it exposes and helps remove those areas in our lives which are not like him or pleasing to him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter writes, Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. There's <coughs> no growth in the Christian life apart from being in the word and his word being in us. You remember in John chapter 6, after Jesus had finishing saying, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And after he had said this, many of the disciples who had gathered said, this is, a, this is a hard saying. Who can even listen to this? And then in John 6 verse 66, it said, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus then turned to the twelve. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They knew it. The question is, do we know it? They knew the word of God wasn't merely words of some wise man that we look at once in a while. These were the very words of God that possessed life-changing power to prune us and to shape us, to correct us. And God still uses his word today, the good news is, to change our lives. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus will pray to the Father, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He says it right there. Sanctify them, Father. Prune them, Father, in your truth. Where do we find the truth? We find it in the word of God. His word is truth. You might have noticed, but none of us will have an easy pass through this life. <laughs> There'll never not be a season where we aren't being pruned or, or trimmed. This is all part of the Christian walk with Christ. A loving father will discipline his children in order to rid them of anything that keeps them from being unfruitful. Now notice what he says there in verse 3, already you. You referring to the fruit bearing branches. You are, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, remember earlier in John 13, 10, when Jesus was um, washing his disciples' feet in the upper room, there Jesus said something very similar to this to Peter. And he said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So the 11 were clean already, but Judas was not. And so now back in our verse in John 15, he says, already you are clean. And how were they already clean? Jesus says, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Wow. This is the picture the, the, the master painter, if you will, the master gardener. And he shows us these key points here. So let's move on now to 
number two in verses four through five is the command. And this should be uh, every true believer's priority. Jesus continues in these, his final words. He says in verse four, abide in me and I in you. And we see here, he continues with this imagery of the vine and the branches. And what he will say is, even as a branch must stay closely connected to the vine in order to produce fruit, so you must also stay closely connected to me. So he says, abide, abide in me, abide in me. And this word abide really becomes the dominant theme. It's used over 10 times in the rest of our verses. 40 times in the Gospel of John, abide, abide. And this word abide means to remain and to stay. And the idea is to remain intimately associated with and to stay closely connected to. It can also mean to dwell with or to dwell in. Remain, abide, stay. It, it means to persevere. And not to be in and out and in and out, but to remain with him in relation. And what do we persevere in? We persevere in trusting him. We persevere in obeying him. In other words, we are to continue in a daily, personal union and communion with Christ. Abide in me. Abide. This word abide is also an imperative word, which simply means this is a command. <laughs> this isn't a suggestion. If you feel like it, you should, you should abide. No. This is abide in me. I command you. <laughs> Father knows best. <laughs> it is a, a daily decision to make Christ our utmost priority in life. All right? And at any given point in our lives, there are varying degrees by which we would say that we abide in Christ. Um, sometimes we're abiding more than other times. Sometimes we're in the closest union with Christ. We're in his word. We are in prayer. We are worshiping him. And we are consciously aware of him continually throughout the day. And we are following him in, in lockstep closeness. And at other times, we become distracted, preoccupied. We're too busy to be in the Word. We're too busy to prayerfully seek Him. We're too busy to offer Him worship. And in those times, we are not abiding in the Lord. You haven't lost your salvation. Christ hasn't moved anywhere. His Spirit hasn't left you. But you're just too busy to be abiding in Him making him the utmost priority and, and how easy it is to become ensnared by the things of this world and to become distracted by a job, even our relationships. Sometimes we just get too comfortable and we just hit the switch and put it in cruise control. And yet what Jesus wants is for you and for me to abide in him. It means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It means to be in prayer. It means to live in obedience to his word. It means to trust in him in everything that you do. It means to rely upon his strength and, and not my own. It means to look to him for wisdom and guidance and direction. It means to wait on his perfect timing. It means to yield and to submit to him. It means to rest in his love and his mercy and his grace. Abide in me. Boy, doesn't that sound good? So we got to start living that, don't we? Now notice the second half of this. He, sa he says, first, abide in me. And then notice what he says next. And I in you. <laughs> now, although Jesus says, abide in me, and then he says, I in you. The initiative of salvation is exactly in the opposite order. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. Praise God. Uh, the, the point of Jesus' command is, is that as you abide in me, you can be assured, I'm already abiding in you. 
<laughs> it's an encouragement of faith. Wow. You are not left on your own. You will never be alone. God is with his people even in their hearts. Now, with the rest of verse 4, he wants us to see why this is so important that we abide in him. So he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So, so crystal clear here, no branch can't produce fruit on its own. Right? None. No, no, no branch can produce growth on its own unless you abide in Christ. So now in verse 5, Jesus, the master teacher, restates what he just said by repetition. You'll notice this sometimes. When, when the Lord really wants to get something through to us, he'll repeat it throughout a couple of verses. And he does that here. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. So he restates what he said in verses 1 through 3. And then he says, whoever abides in me, I in him. That's a restatement of verse 4. He it is that bears much fruit. He will live a productive, vibrant, full spiritual life in which there will be much fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is present. The fruit of Christ-likeness is evident. The fruit of an effective ministry is seen. The fruit of being an effective parent and being an effective grandparent. The fruit of being an effective witness for Christ. The fruit of being anything and everything that is within the will of God for your life. They'll be fruit. It'll be fruitful. He concludes verse 5, For apart from me, meaning apart from abiding in me, you can do, now just stare at that word, you see that there in your Bible? For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Wow. Now, you may say, well, I do a lot of things. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> nothing here means nothing that is acceptable to God. Nothing here means nothing that glorifies God. Nothing here means nothing that is going to have a lasting imprint on the kingdom of God. Nothing, nothing of eternal significance, nothing of any lasting value. Apart from me, you can't do anything. So Jesus here commands us and says, you and I must be living moment by moment, abiding in Christ, the true vine. That's the priority that we abide in Christ. And let me just give you two words, how we abide, dependence and obedience. And I'll mention this kind of towards the end, so I'll just be quick with this. But we should be living in a constant dependence on Christ, right? Um, not looking to yourself, but looking to Christ. Set your mind on things above, not on things here below, right? Looking to Christ in total trust and dependence on him. And then secondly, obedience. You and I have to live in obedience to the commandments of Christ or just unplugged from the source we can do nothing without his enabling and him empowering us so these are simple but profound words that jesus is stating this leads us to verse six and probably the most difficult verse in the section the condemnation jesus now addresses what he brought up at the beginning of verse two and those non-abiding fruit branches we were talking about here he goes in verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, in other words, if you have not been born again, if God hasn't given you a new heart to love God and to love Christ, if there's no spiritual fruit, no saving relationship whatsoever, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. He's just cut off and thrown away. He, he dries up. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burnt. The fire here refers to the fire of divine judgment. The fire of eternal hell. The unquenchable fire. The lake of fire and brimstone. That's why this disciple that does not bear fruit 
that does not abide in Christ will be damned in hell forever. You're not connected to the vine. Do you see how serious it is to play church and not to be a true believer in Christ? Do you see how serious it is to just go through the, the empty motions of, of church? And, and there's a lot of people who do it. And they sit in the pews each week and they hear the gospel being preached. And as Jesus said earlier, their hearts may be just getting harder and harder and harder to the message instead of uh, the tenderizing of the heart. Instead of that, that tender heart, they keep their heart of stone. Again, we think about Judas, one of the 12. The disciples had no idea he was a betrayer. Why? He blended right in with the rest of them. Judas was so trusted, he held the, the Lord's money box. I mean, Judas went out with the rest of the disciples for the last three years, did many good works, preached many lessons, did many of signs and healings. He prayed. He was part of passing out the loaves and the fishes. He fed the 5,000. But to not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is a horrific and it is a damning sin for which there is no forgiveness. You can be forgiven from adultery. You can be forgiven from murder. You can be forgiven for being a thief and even stealing the Lord's own money. There's only one sin that will never be forgiven, and it is to die in your sin of unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see now how serious this verse is. In John 3, verse 18, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, in Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Well, our last section here is verses 7 through 11. And Jesus unloads with four divine promises to every true disciple. And, and what a stark contrast to go from verse 6 to, to, to go into verse 7. I mean, we, we have just crossed the Jordan, all right? And, and, and Jesus makes four promises to these disciples. And let me tell you, they're, they're still on the books. They're still in play. These are just as relevant and just as powerful as when Jesus first spoke them. And the first promise is answered prayer. And we see this in verse 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 8, verse 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Every true disciple continues in the word of God. Everyone. And the word used here for continue is the word metno in the Greek. And it's the very same word that's translated abide. <laughs> in fact, some of your translations may even may, maybe say abide here. If you abide or continue in my word, then you are truly mine disciples and i want you to notice the result of this ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you this is a staggering promise whatever you wish let me be clear he's not opening the door for the prosperity gospel here all right there's no guarantee here of health wealth and prosperity if his word is abiding in you Every prayer is going to be directed and governed by the word of God. And you're going to be praying for that which glorifies the Father and that which extends the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the context here. In fact, he just said earlier in, in John 14, in verse 14, 
If you ask me anything in my, in my name, I will do it. In verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then look at verse 12. This is the context it is in. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. That is not saying we will do greater works in quality. We will do greater works, as we've talked about, in quantity. Once the Holy Spirit comes, it will be better for you I go away. We will do greater works than Christ, because when the Holy Spirit comes, God will dwell inside in every single believer... Okay, and he will use man to take the gospel to the utter ends of the earth. Everything Jesus did took place in this tiny little dust bowl in Judea, right? But on the day of Pentecost, we already see something amazing starting to happen. When Peter stood up and, and preached in front of 3,000 Jews who had come from all over the dispersia, from all over the lands, to celebrate Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved in that one day. That never happened when Jesus preached. And that was only the beginning for even greater works. As every one of those men then returned home and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, like a raging wildfire, spread all around the world. So it is assumed when you ask for anything in my name, it is assumed that it's talking about the extension of the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the salvation of lost souls. So just ask concerning those things and within the sovereign will of God, I will bring those to pass. Second promise is in verse 8. And this is the assurance of your salvation. That's what we see here. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified. What is this? He tells us that you bear much fruit. The more fruit that you bear brings even more glory to God the Father. And I mean, any gardener knows this, right? That when you see the flowers are all budding, and when you see your garden just exploding with all those great vegetables the gardener starts collecting all that. And so it is here with God the Father. Notice the end of verse 8, and so prove to be my disciples. Prove it. You see, as you see that fruit being produced in your life, it becomes the greatest assurance of salvation. It's not that you walked forward at the end of a church service. It's not that you were baptized. It's not that you joined a membership at a church. You can still do that all day and still be lost. What you cannot fake is a spirit-changed life. And the supernatural fruit that it then produces, you can't fake that. And as you see God work in your life from producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you know that God is at work in your life and that he, in fact, lives inside of you. That's what verse 8 is saying, that as you bear much fruit, it proves that you, are one of his disciples. The third promise is in verse 9 and 10, and it's abounding love in Christ. Abounding love in Christ. Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, now, read that again, that's quite a statement right here, just as the Father has loved the Son, okay, fully, eternally, constantly, passionately, fervently, just as the Father has loved me, notice this, so have I loved you wow we can't even comprehend verses like this of just how much the lord jesus christ loves you 
It's an immeasurable amount of love. So he says, abide in my love. And again, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. So he says, abide in my love. Now you might be thinking, man, I do want this. I do want to abide in his love, but, but how do I do that? Well, verse 10 tells us, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. <laughs> Doing God's will as revealed in scripture is the essential condition of actively abiding in the Lord Jesus' love. There's no other way. Salvation is not earned by doing good works, but out of the overflow of your love for your God, you will keep his commandments. And guess what? You will abide in his love. That is what grace is, undeserving and just showered with it. And if you want to experience everything that the Lord has planned for you, don't be fooled into thinking, it doesn't matter if I obey him. When we obey God, we are honoring God. When we disobey him, we are not. And disobedience removes us from the, the full outpouring of daily things that the Lord desires to do in you and through you. And look no further than Jesus as our example. He says, just as I have kept my father's commandments, and abide in his love. Wow. The last promise we see is in verse 11. And it's a promise of abundant joy. Jesus continues. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. So there's a greater purpose here than just having a, a notebook full of sermon notes. Okay. Or a list of laws that you said, yep, I kept this. I kept this. I kept this. It's so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Note, please, that it says my joy may be in you. It's not joy like mine. or It's the very exact joy that exists in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the crowning blessing to which all the rest contribute is full and complete joy. It is the joy that the Son shares in the intimate fellowship within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he promises his own joy will permeate and control the lives of those who walk in communion with him. This is one of the many fruits of obedience to him. 1 Peter 1 verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then also notice what it says at the end of verse 11, and that your joy may be full. This verb here, to make full, to complete, to, to fill to capacity, in other words, to be filled. I like the idea, so your cup runneth over, <laughs> right? So as we close today, let me just close with a few questions I want you to consider. Do you need joy in your life? Abide in Christ. Do you need peace for your troubled hearts? Abide in Christ. Do you need wisdom to discern God's direction for your life? Abide in Christ. Do you need strength, the supernatural strength of God in this season of your life? Oh yeah, so abide. In Christ. If you find yourself here today and you are not abiding in Christ, I would remind you that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus came to this world 2,000 years ago and offered himself as the perfect, pleasing sacrifice for our sin. He is our substitute and he died the death that, that we alone deserve. And through the ministry of his word, and by the power of his spirit, he is still calling sinners home today, right now. He is calling them to repent of their sins and put their life in the hands of the only one 
who can make you clean, not by your works, but by his blood and his mercy and his grace. Abide in the true vine. He is the true vine. Abide in him today. And at this time, I just ask the leaders to come forward and the rest of the fellowship can please stand. And if you need prayers, um, we'd love to pray with you, either now or after service. So we stand and sing, glorious day, living you, love me, dying, he saved me.